This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 612. And the quote of the day is, sooner or later, everything old is new again. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 612 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I appreciate you being here. And this is a re-release. And the reason why I'm re-releasing this, there's a couple reasons. One, because if you've been watching the news, the legendary Paul Jackson bass player passed away about two weeks ago. He passed away, unfortunately, on, on March 18th. And Paul and Mike Clark as far as I'm concerned, are the best, funkiest duo of bass and drums ever assembled. And they were longtime collaborators. And we talk about his friendship and his relationship with Paul in this episode. And once Paul passed away, I started just digging you know, back into his catalog and listening to his work and the stuff that he did with Mike Clark and everything. And I, I just kept thinking about, one, how timeless all the music was that they created together, but then also how timeless this conversation was that I had with Mike. And this conversation is old. I recorded this originally on December 15th of 2014. So it's like, you know, six years old, seven years old. So I wanted to bring this back up to the top again because of the recent events, unfortunately, with Paul Jackson, but also because... I realized just how timeless all of this information is, and I wanted to bring it up to the top because I'm guessing in 2014, a lot of you were not listening to this podcast. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to get into it with the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Mike Clark. Mike, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this going on everything is cool how are you and thank you for having me i might add (laughs) absolutely man i gotta i gotta be forthright and honest with you you are uh one of my favorite drummers of all time so it's it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast well thank you bro my pleasure my pleasure so i know i know that the audience knows who you are and knows about you but I always like to get the backstory of how people got into playing. And I heard a crazy story that you like learned how to play one day and then that night went down to play a gig and like killed it or something like that. But I just I just want to get a, a brief backstory of of how you got into playing and, and how you really, you know, got on this path of playing drums. OK, well, um, first of all, my father was a drummer and he always had. Uh, records, jazz records, boogie woogie records, and uh, jump kind of blues records playing around the house like all day, every day. So that was the, uh, and there was also a drum set there. So uh, at one point I walked over to the drum set. I'd been listening to this music inadvertently because I'm in the house, and uh, even at the times when I couldn't walk and what have you, I was. Uh, <laughs> They were playing the music all the time. It was just party music, and so when his friends would come over, you know, they would uh, always uh, listen to the music and hang. So uh, one day I went over to the drum set, and uh, I seemed... I remember doing it. I was four years old. I can actually remember it. I got a weird memory that really works well. That is crazy, because I can't remember what I did four days ago, so four years old is out of the question. I know. It's weird. Well, (laughs) sometimes I'm like that, too, but um, I can remember way back. 
anyway, I have no idea why. It's just one of the you know uh, things I got going on. Where there are some other things where I'm I don't have it going on so good. Right. <laughs> so, but I, I know I walked over to the drums and I just started playing and I played kind of a Gene Krupa Tom Tom type rhythm on uh, and it all made sense and it sounded kind of like the records. It was close and um uh it was simple but it was a but it didn't sound like a kid beating on something it was like it sounded like a guy it sounded like a drummer right so my father was like you know he was elated he was like really and so he took me that night uh, because he was a musician he wasn't a great drummer and by now he was working on the railroads but he took me to that night uh, that night took me that night to my friend to one of his friends gigs and had me sit in and i played sweet georgia brown and took a big solo and everything. I remember standing, I had to stand up to reach the pedals <laughs> and all of this type of thing. But um, that's how it went. I don't know whether I killed it or anything like that, but it was obvious to everybody that I was a drummer. You know what I mean? It was that's like insane, not though. I mean, like, just the fact that, that you could do that and not, you know, because most people sit down and it's like they can't even figure out where to put their feet and you know their hand they don't know what to do with their hands or or anything and the fact that the first time you ever played you could just go down and play this gig with your you know or you know sit in on this gig is pretty amazing i seem to know how to play the tom tom thing i knew several kids uh that were four and five that could play the kind of the gene krupa type tom tom thing you know what i mean and right. uh and I was one of them. I don't know whether I knew to play the ride cymbal when the band was playing. I think I played more of like the, the Dixieland March thing on the snare that I saw my father play, which was kind of, I guess, a takeoff on the New Orleans thing now that I know more about it than I did it for. You right, know? Right. But I, it was all there. I mean, I, I think I was on the right side of the beat, and it was cooking, and I played a pretty good little solo, and my hands seemed to know what to do. Right. And even as I grew older, by the time I was eight and nine, I could play uh, a lot of really good adult-sounding, professional-sounding bebop stuff and stuff like Louis Belson. And, uh, you know, I was in a couple of different camps. I liked Gene and Louie and Buddy, but I also really, really loved Max and uh, and Philly Joe my, and Art Blakey. So I was trying to be like, yeah, I was trying to learn what those guys were doing and, and in those days, we didn't do transcriptions. We never wrote anything out, so you just made your own way up of doing it, and I'm still that way. I right. still play that way. I never write out, so-and-so did this, so I'm going to write it out. I just mm -hmm. kind of get in the ballpark there somewhere and play my version of what what I heard that I liked, just the vibe. I catch the vibe and then do whatever. You right. Know? <clears throat> right. Now, did you do? Did you go like the rudiment way? Did you, did you study with people and, and go that way, or were you all self-taught and just listening to records and figuring it out? self-taught figuring out and listening to records but at one point i went to a guy to learn how to read when i was seven or eight and he was really impressed with my hands because uh, at that point i was playing fairly well for a kid that age i was on a couple of tv shows and i could i could really solo and all this type of thing and so uh we went through the rudiment books together but i could play him almost uh, I could play him better than I could read him. Like, right, it was not a problem to play double paradiddles and paradiddles and doubles and all of this type of thing. Flams. I was kind of already doing that. Now, did you know, you what, know I mean? what you were playing though? Like, did you know you were playing a double paradiddle or whatever the case may be? I had no idea, but I listened to those guys on the record, and then I would just try to make. And I had a drum set, uh, so I tried to make it sound like what they were doing. And I just kind of did most of the stuff I was doing was pretty. As it turned out, was pretty good. Was pretty close. Pretty damn close. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then I got into 
reading and learning all that stuff and getting it um, in much better shape. But it was, I got to say, well, people grow at different times. I know artists that sound kind of okay, and then when they're 21 till the time they're 28 or 9 or 30 or so, they grow and they become fantastic. And other guys get really good at a really young age or in their teenage, you know, goes all right. kinds of different ways. happens all kinds of different ways if you <laughs> stick to it. I know? think I'd rather go the other, I think I'd rather get better as I got older, not be better when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I would, I could, I've tried to improve myself all the time. Uh, and I end up improving myself conceptually, musically, and uh, um, s- always trying to swing harder and deeper and better and thicker and fatter and, you know, whatever. But um, uh, certain things that I, uh, a certain thing was already formed by the time I was five or six or seven, and that thing is already is still there. And sometimes I'd like to completely get away from that, the place that I originally come from and play some completely different stuff, but I, I can't seem to, it seems to be, I can't change it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. you, know? <laughs> you know, you want to try something different. It's just your body is, and your brain is telling you, Nope, this is you do. This is what you do. <laughs> yeah. In other words, it's hard for me to get my technique past where I already am. A, I'm older and I have a lot of, uh, I have some arm problems and stuff from playing the ride pattern for like, you know, 50, 60 years or whatever it's been. And the other thing is, um, uh, I, um, I got to a certain point early where I could play, if I wanted a burst of speed, I could do it quite easily, but I've never been able to go past that, which seemed fast, not that fast is what we're talking about, but you know, you want to play slow, right. medium and fast, but now so. those guys go into these super hyper, fast zones that I could never get I can't there's no way <laughs> man I just I'm I'm the same way man I just I can't I can't do it it's like I can't you know I can't dunk a basketball and I can't <laughs> yeah certain it, things are just not going to happen this in this incarnation right. I know I had my single stroke roll um uh up to about 113 or 115 30 second notes, which is quite fast. Sure. But I could never get to 120 or like Buddy Rich or 100. And these guys now can really. I mean, I was never thinking about it that way anyway. I was always thinking about things from a jazz perspective. But since I have students that challenge me, then I'm some. At times, I get involved in this madness. Right. Right. And it's not, you know, it's like a it's a headroom thing too. You know. If, if yeah, you can play well, at 140 true. or 150 and you never go above 115, man, you could play that all night. Yeah, you, you know? know. Yeah, that's true. You know, that's true. So anyway, I mean, though, I don't really have uh, goals as far as speed, but I did try to uh, keep up with some of my students and try to push my hands to the level that some of them can play, and uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> just not going to happen because I put a lot of time into it, you know, you know. I remember seeing some videos of you on Facebook and you were posting them, you know, like like every couple of days and you're like, here's, you know, working on this pad, working on this pad. Yeah, I, me and Steve Smith were doing that together. We were kind of goofing around, but it was like, yeah, I was getting it really going and it became a challenge and a diversion from the type of thing I normally play and I enjoyed doing it. But then I got to a point where I started injuring my like tendon tennis elbows started showing up and stuff so i cool it i'm like okay oh, that's geez. not I, I and quite frankly on a jazz gig i don't know where i'd ever play anything like that anyway i mean i'm sure that the other artists the saxophone players trumpet players whatever would be like 
what are you doing, man? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was more like a gymnasium thing, but it was fun while it lasted. It was kind of different. Right, right, right. So I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, when you were saying you were eight and nine, you were playing uh, in different TV shows and stuff. Where were you living at the time? It, uh, Keysport, Pennsylvania. Oh, and, really? That's uh, right. I'm from Pennsylvania. I didn't know that. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I lived in McKeesport at that point. Uh, and then also, uh, we would go down to Atlanta, Savannah, New Orleans and spend three and four months at a time because he was railroading, so he would be uh, uh, shipped into um, you know, shipped to different parts of the country, and we just roll with him. You know what I mean? Right, so, right. Um, because- uh, so I got a lot of, oh, and then uh, and quite a few times in Texas. So I had a blues background just from living in those places. I, the, it was hard to get jazz gigs. Even as a kid, uh, even as a teenager, I ended up meeting a guy that put me on a bunch of blues gigs. So I always needed bread, so I didn't say no, sure. you know. So that was cool. That was cool. It was good for me. For yeah. some reason, I thought that you were from Oakland, and I don't know why. I've... Well, I was born in Sacramento. I'm a California guy. Okay. And then we left by the time I was seven. We left and traveled a lot. But then when I came back to California, uh, I, uh, I graduated from high school in California, and I moved down to the Bay Area. So I got you. Uh, I got yeah, you. and when I made my mark, such as it is, whatever you want to call it, when I became uh, – known in the in the industry it was uh in oakland that and it was for i was known for being um one of the pioneers of the so-called oakland drum style you know right. <clears throat> so yeah that's how that so the word the term the the name oakland has stayed with me <laughs> right right and well the reason why i was going to ask is because you and dave garibaldi are the same age you guys were born like a month apart from each other who's older him or me um when were you born? November or October? No, October. Okay, he was born in November. Okay, all right. You got to buy a month. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. So you're the true pioneer, you can tell. So, um, so was there was there a bunch of of competition between you and Dave in Oakland, or were you guys friends, or were you guys kind of developing this thing together, or how did that go? Down? No. Well, it was really interesting. I was a complete bebopper at the time. I was submerged in the bebop scene and post-bop scene. I was playing with Woody Shaw, Bobby Hutcherson, uh, Chet Baker, and, and and whoever else didn't famous or not famous. It didn't matter. I was doing a. We played seven nights a week in those days. There was so much work, and I I wasn't interested. I didn't even think about playing this style of funky thing. I mean, every once in a while, I'd get an organ gig, and we'd play mercy mercy and i'd make up those beats that i did with herbie i did those beats for years that was just my way of addressing that right right and i'd never heard david garibaldi and um so paul jackson and i the bassist he was actually an upright jazz bass player on his way to becoming one and he worked at a store called sherman and clay and we shared a big uh crib a big pad together out in East Oakland, and all the musicians would come by in there and jam. would come by and jam. We had a B3 in the place and the whole thing, and it was kind of the epicenter for all the guys. And um, what happened was uh, he brought over to the music room an electric bass one day, and it sat in there for years, for a year, one year. 
And then one day he picked it up and he played exactly the way you hear him play on Thrust and Headhunter. Really? And, he, and yeah, and I remember saying to him, he he just took it right out of the case and started right in. And I said, if you're going to play bass like that, you need to play guitar. And he got all mad at me, you know. <laughs> and uh, he said, play some of that stuff you play uh, with uh, on the organ gigs. Play some of that double time stuff he called it then, which really was just sixteenth notes. Sure. And uh, I would break it up all throughout the drum set. And I just did it, and so him and I started doing gigs, and so that style that him and I play had been around. We'd been doing that for a long time. One time, Paul and I, he also played B3, played an organ duo in a club, and there was a band setting up in the club next door. We went next door to hear them, and it was David Garibaldi in the Tower of Power, and uh, he had just joined them, I believe, and he knocked me out. I loved what he was doing. Now, we're not really that similar at all. Uh, we're, I'm from a jazz background. I'm not sure whether he is or not, but he plays, even though we do play a 16th note thing, it's, we're very different. Sure. And no, I was never competitive with him. I dug him right away, and I dig him to this day. I think he's brilliant, and he's funky, and, and, uh, and he's a dear friend, and I totally dig Garibaldi. I'm a fan, as a matter of fact. But we didn't, uh, I wasn't looking at it that way at all. When I met him, I was actually not that interested in funk. I'd do it to make a living if I, you know, and you're not going to sure. turn any gigs down, you right, know, right. At, at that age and at that time period. So, but I wasn't thinking, I had no idea I was going to get to gig with Herbie Hancock and be known for this. I, I was completely positive I would be known as a, is a post pop jazz drummer. <laughs> hmm. So how did yeah, the so, how did the Herbie gig come about? Paul Jackson uh, was playing with uh, uh, started getting really good on the electric bass, and he got a gig with Little Anthony and the Imperials. And Herbie's manager heard him playing with Little Anthony, uh, and on a break tune or something, Paul was doing his thing, and uh, Herbie's manager heard him and went, "Yeah, man!" So. He hired so Herbie hired him, and they did a record with Harvey Mason. Mm -hmm. Then Harvey quit; didn't really quit, I guess. He he wasn't going to go on the road because he was making a lot of money already as a studio musician. He didn't want to travel. Right? Was that that first Headhunters record with like Chameleon and all that on it? Yeah, that was yeah. Harvey. And so um, uh, Paul told Herbie, Lenny White told Herbie, if you're going to have Paul Jackson, you should have Mike Clark because they're. They're like one guy. They can really do this thing, you know. And so um, uh, Paul was my best friend as well, you know. So mm -hmm. um, he told Herbie about me, and that's how it happened. And then I went in and went over and played with him, and he hired me right then, right on the spot. And, that, and then uh, that was it, and we took off, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, when I first got the gig, I was playing more like in the Tony Williams, for lack of a better thing to say i can't play like tony williams but you know that style i thought i was playing you know right right, right. and and herbie was like no 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 we're, we're gonna get funky man don't do that so i went back to the the kind of oakland thing if you will that paul and i were working on on the side we weren't working on it. it it was not my what's weird about this of course it happens to a lot of musicians is that wasn't my real focal point i was i didn't know it was going to we didn't know Herbie's record was going to sell a million. You know, it just was something that happened. Right. You know? Now, did you dig it, though? I mean, because you were saying before that you were more into the, the bop and the post-bop stuff. So were you still kind of like, ah, I'm not really interested in playing this funk stuff? 
No, when I first got the band, we were stretching out quite a bit, and I was completely into the band. I completely wanted to try to do something new and different with Herbie. I was enamored with his personality. I really dug him. Paul and I were buddies. We were having a blast. I felt like we were breaking new ground. So at that time, I didn't care whether we were playing Three Blind Mice or Eric Dolphy tunes or Sonny Rollins tunes or Bebop. I was just I just really loved what we were doing. But shortly after that, it became it started to become commercial, and they started asking me, "Don't play so much. Don't play so." Don't improvise, and pretty soon they wanted me to play straight, kind of like straight time, and that's when I started feeling like this is no longer my gig. I right. need the money. It's fun to make the money. It's nice to say that you play with a guy like Herbie Hancock, but I really am not a, just a two and four drummer. I can do that. I mean, I played with Sam and Dave and O. C. Smith and Albert King and Albert. I can do all that stuff, but man, I, that's not really why I. That's not really why I play music, is to keep... I'm a jazz kind of person. <laughs> and if, any, mean, if anybody follows you on Facebook, they will know that, because uh, I th you're pretty vocal about how you feel about the current jazz landscape. Uh, so, I, and I want, to get in that with, with, I want to get in that with you a little bit, because I know that you're so passionate about it, and you have your, you have your opinions about it, and, and rightfully so. So what do, you, what do you think about what's currently going on, especially in New York? which is where you're, you're living now. Yes. Um, well, there's a lot of, first of all, let me say there's a lot of great, and I mean great jazz artists here in New York that are brilliant, mm -hmm. some which people may never hear about. You know what I mean? Right, because right, right. There's, no re there's no record companies anymore. So you make your own CD, sells a couple of thousand, you sell them at the gigs in Europe, this and that. So, But there's plenty of great... Uh, musicians, young, old, and in the middle, all over the place, and especially in New York City. And who's I'm sure, some of the guys that you suggest people checking out? Well, um, I've been hearing a guy named Carmen and Tori. Do you know him? Who plays with uh, uh, Pat Martino? He's great. Carm, Carm's a buddy of mine. I actually uh, I play with Pat Bianchi once in a while, the organ player. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And, uh, well, Carm's Carm's killer drummer. I love how he. Drums. I, I actually he interviewed him, uh, and I played a I, I played a gig with him before we did like this double drum thing. But he, uh, I interviewed him a couple weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago on the podcast. How cool is that? Yeah, he and I <laughs> met through the D Francescos. I know uh, Joey and Johnny. So okay, we all well. Um, uh, well, I you know I dig him. I hear a lot. I hear guys around, but um, what I. I mean, uh, I know he loves Billy Hart, and Billy came from Max, and and all, and there's a huge connection. Uh, um, um, but, but um, you know, I'm not one of those guys that uh, hates what I hear and everything. But, but I'm also not one of those guys that thinks that you need to um, have a new gadget, have a new electric toy, have a new gimmick. Uh, or, uh, the heart of many jazz musicians, musicians, excuse me, is in improvising mm -hmm. and playing. That's why we can play the same tunes and never get tired of it because it's going to be different every time it goes down. Right. You know what I mean? So, right, right. so um, anyway, um, um, I think in some instances, I think uh, uh, in some instances, 
and some musicians, I won't mention names, I hear a definite break from the lineage as if, as if the stuff before never happened. I don't care for that so much. I right. think that's tradition. I'm not saying you have to play da 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 or play, you know, what uh, Max did or this or that, but uh, because uh, of their struggle on every level and because they invented the stuff, I personally, my opinion, it's all opinion anyway, mine is that bring some of that with you. You know so, what I mean? Um, who's the guy? Uh, I met him uh, recently. McClunty Hunter, is that his name? Uh, uh, not familiar. Kenny, yeah, he plays with Kenny, Kenny Garrett. He's great. I really dug what he was doing. Um, uh, when I hear guys rolling all over the drum set as fast as they can, I find it really boring. Uh, <laughs> and no, no, but I like to... I would pay them money to go hear them without a band and just listen to them blast. You right. know what I mean? Sure, sure. I <laughs> but with a band, it sucks, man. It's like, right. what are you doing, man? What about everybody? You know, it doesn't swing, and there's nothing. I don't find any mystery in it. Whereas right. when you hear guys like Lenny White that can play a phrase, it'll just stop everybody in the club, and mm -hmm. they don't even know what hit them. To me, that's... Uh, there's some mystery there. You know what I mean? You know, I think, I think, tell me if you agree with this, because there's, there's playing on a certain level that is the mechanical aspect of it, but then there's the whole cerebral aspect of it. And I think that a lot of people get stuck on the mechanical aspect of it, but don't really get into the cerebral part of it. And, you know, so how do, how do you suggest that people get there aside from the obvious of just practicing and listening? Um, let me get, well, I think if you get to the, um, musical part of it. And that's like, what I meant what, by the cerebral part of it, not necessarily, um, you know, thinking what, yeah, no, playing. I think I, I heard you. I understood. I got you. Um, yeah. Um, I didn't explain yeah, I think, that very well. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. We're just talking and it's hard to get everything nailed out every time, but I did, I understood what you meant. Um, yeah, I know it's not like we're sitting around with skull caps on, like, you know, just thinking all of it, right. <laughs> you know, like, um, um, but um, I feel if you understand this, the, the music, if you understand the roots, if you understand the language, if you understand the tradition, if you understand the people some as best as you can, what they did, what they went through, who they were, why they did. You know, I was fortunate uh, enough to be born at a time when I met all those guys and went, talked with them and interacted with them, with the masters, you know. So, so um, but... Um, uh, and uh, uh, and if I couldn't interact with them, I'd get the next guy in line. You know what I mean? Who was sure. closest to them? I'd find out every bit of. So I think um, uh, if you use your talent for uh, musical purposes to be uh, to communicate, then then and then if you communicate something really nasty, funky, hip, uh, in the cracks, interesting, brilliant, whatever. Man, that's great. To me, that's really the beauty of the thing. You know what I mm -hmm, mean? And mm -hmm. like, if you really understand the forms of the song and you've done your homework, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is for people, it's better for me when guys do their homework. They know what happened. You don't have to know perfectly every date and every track on every record like some guys do. I don't, 
OCD on it, but I got a pretty pretty damn good idea. You know right. what I mean? And, right. and it's like I know most of the tunes, the structures, and the forms to them, and I've become good at learning the ones I don't know really quickly. Like if somebody writes some tricky stuff, I can learn it right away, you know? And so you can improvise over those forms. I play with guys sometimes that really don't have any of that language, and they call it playing open or free, and it doesn't swing, man, you know? Right, and, right. And, and I'm not like a really Nazi-type guy. I'm pretty cool, too. I'm pretty liberal and open and loose about it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if somebody's BSing them, I, I'm not going to really dig that so good, you know? <laughs> right, like, or, or pr give them praise for it. Or, or that, or, yeah, that's even worse when guys are like, man, did you hear that? They, they think it's great, and I'm like, yeah, I heard it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, another thing, I was having an interesting conversation with a great drummer, Michael Barsamanto from L.A. this morning. We were talking about how sometimes you can be playing, with, and I'm sure you've had this, you can be playing, and it's, let's say the bass player is kind of dragging or the, or, or the harmony is not quite, they're not quite together. So you have to kind of work a little harder. You can't be totally relaxed. You kind of have to reinforce things and keep things together, you know? Mm -hmm. And I used to think, man, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe that's being a little too making everybody follow me or something. But when I, so recently I decided, okay, I'm going to follow them when they do that. And and see if my instinct was correct or not. I don't have to be right about anything at this point in my life, that's for sure. <laughs> so I just completely relaxed and followed uh, them around. And the tune almost came to a halt. It was interesting. Really? Like, yeah, because I could, you know, if you're playing and uh, it doesn't feel right or somebody's pulling way back or... Or, or or too nervous on the on the other end of it, or the changes are not being lined up. Usually, this doesn't happen. Usually, everybody's pretty cool, but um, uh, you know, when you play with a band that really swings, you don't have to reinforce anything. You don't have to uh, pick up the toys after the kids or in the store or whatever it right. is. You know, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was just, it, it's its fun to talk about that because those are real situations that happen to all of us. You know, I'm sure you've had it happen to you. You go on a gig and things feel weird. Just to, Man, I used to play with this bass player and he was the MD of the band and his tempo was ridiculous. It was ridiculously bad. So he would like, he would count tunes off in three, but the tunes in four or like, oh boy. like oh all, boy. or, you know, it'd be like one, two, three, four. And it comes in, it's like, boom, got to, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, yeah. totally different tempos and everything. And he would always just like fire evil eyes at everybody, you know, insisting that they were the ones making the mistake. <laughs> oh, I played with very famous people who I listened to their records as a kid and I played with them and that very thing was going on. They were all over the place and didn't even know it. And, right. Right. And, and yeah, it, it's bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a drummer thing because you get good at, at rhythm because that's what we do. So you're, you're used to, and if you're used to high-level guys, you don't have any of that. You just go right in. It's like driving a great car. It just takes off, and that's the end of it. You right. know what it's I so mean? easy. Like, it's so easy. But sometimes, man, you know, you're like, wow, this is a job. I'm really earning my money, you know? Right. So, <laughs> and and uh, so I was trying to wonder. I was trying to, I was second-guessing myself. Like, maybe I, 
maybe I'm being a little too strict about the time and the form. Man, let me just relax a little bit like I would if I played with some cats where it was all lined up and see what happened. Not a good move. The whole thing fell apart. So I learned that... Uh, <laughs> Somebody's got to keep keep the ship going in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep it going. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, and then, of course, because, you know, you get a lot of vibes. Sometimes when you keep it going, people are bugged. They're like, they give you that look like, you know, but you know if you don't keep it going, they're going... It's going down. The whole thing's going down. You know? <laughs> then nobody okay. looks good. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's a weird kind of a gig being a drummer. You have all that stuff going on. You know, like, <clears throat> sometimes you can play through it, and sometimes, uh, you, you know, sometimes, like, if somebody's, if I play with a rhythm section that feels things behind the beat, I just widen up my cymbal more and, and relax it more. It's not particularly my favorite way of playing when it comes to bebop or post-bop. Right. I'd rather have a little bit of a, not especially an edge, but a point on the groove, so that way everybody's stable, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes and, sense. Uh, then it's not a matter of somebody feels it this way or somebody feels it that way. People are swinging, you know? So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator now you had mentioned uh you know a few minutes ago about learning the lineage and and learning um at least where where things came from and i you know the best advice that i always give to people is say listen to somebody and then find out who they listen to and then find out who they listen to so if somebody because i mean you're you're a living legend man you're you're an icon in the drum world and i know that people listen to you a lot and say man i want to play like mike so who were the people that you were listening to and and you know what was the lineage that you came through well i listened to you know, I was born in 1946, so um, when I was five and six, I was listening to, um, my mother liked a drummer named Sudi Singleton, and she thought he was great, and so she had some of his records. He was one of the first drummers I heard when it came to my attention that I was going to be a drummer. Then as soon as I realized after that night that I went down and played with that band I told you about. I, pretty soon I was asking, who's the drummer on that record, you know? Right. So I listened to Zudi, I listened to Buddy, I listened to Gene, I listened to Hamp, I listened to uh, Barrett Deems, I listened to Joe Jones, um, I listened to, um, uh, then <clears throat> I listened to Kluke. Uh, uh, My father uh, got a record with, Kl- with Kenny Clark. And I started listening to Kenny Clark and Art Blakey quite young, and I was like, wow, listen to that. I didn't hear the 4-4 on the bass drum in uh, 
um, I heard all these, you know, they called it dropping bombs in those days, the syncopated bass drum and everything, mm-hmm. and all the things that were going on with the left hand and the conversation and the chatter and the deep riot symbol. And I just went through all of them, Philly Joe, Max, Roy, Sonny Payne. Uh, I like big band drummers, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and so I just, um, I think by the time I was... I guess 18 or 19, I'd heard just about everybody. I listened to all Candy Finch. I listened to Mickey Roker, uh, Tootie. Um, uh, and then, of course, I listened to my peers, too, Lenny White, you know, guys around my age group. Um, um, my friends out in San Francisco were Eddie Marshall and Gaylord Birch. They were great drummers. Um, I was interacting with really good drummers too, also when I was young because I so and and also I <clears throat> I spent some time in New Orleans where I learned I don't know whether I can really actually play I don't think I can play an authentic New Orleans thing because I'm not from there and all that but I stayed there like three months at a time maybe five or six times as a child so some of that stuff wore off on me and I had my own way of uh, incorporating it into my language. I kind of, I'm kind of artist that I never took one person like Max Roach and learned everything he did. I just get like these things that were going on that I, that I liked. And then I would kind of make it part of a stew and that stew became my style. And I put my own, you know, and and also not just the drumming, but I loved the music that was going on. So all of the musicians were Lee Morgan, uh, Freddie Hubbard. All these people were McCoy Tyner, you know, of course Train and Miles and and um, Charlie Parker. All these people were. Uh, I was. They were all becoming part of my brain. Right, right. <laughs> my soul. I mean, it was like I was listening to this stuff you know, since I was a kid, so it's been really a lot of hours logged in listening, although, <clears throat> although I've, um, although I spent a lot of time listening, I'm not the kind of guy that can recognize everybody right away, I'd be horrible in a blindfold test, I, uh, I don't know every track on every record, even the records I've been listening to since I'm 15, right. you know. Right, I'm the same yeah. way, I, I, honestly, you know. Yeah, I just take the vibe of stuff I, I get, like, Sidewinder, Lee Morgan. I, I love that I, tune. I do too. Totem Pole. I love that tune. I don't even know the rest of the tracks, although I've heard the album a million times. Right. See, I'm this kind of guy. I don't uh, study each thing neurotically. I just take what I like and then I'm gone and I get on the next thing that I dig. So a, a piece of all of those people's innovation is kind of inside of me some kind of weird way i guess sure. inside of you know and um, um i used to dig denzel best i uh grady tate um Idris, of course and and uh, purdy and clyde and jabbo almost no blue there, there's very few drummers that i don't like i'd have to say it's hard be hard pressed to find a guy like i hate that guy the way he plays right. you know or something <laughs> like that i you know i dig drumming so i'm cool you know what i mean right. with with other drummers i'm not like man i can do that faster or louder i can do it better i don't care uh, you know i don't give a damn you know mm-hmm. um i really don't i'm not that guy and um so you know, I'm trying to think of the guy I really used to dig. I never copied him, but Clifford Jarvis, remember that cat? 
Yeah, I mean, I know that, you know what, honestly, I know the name. And right. I don't know if I've listened to enough to make a decision, you know, or to comment right. on it, I should say. Well, I only remember about three records that I had him on, but man, he could play some, st- he played some really, it was in the 60s, and it sounded like he was flirting with the avant-garde and swinging, and he was right in the cracks, and he really had a hell of an imagination. There was another guy that used to play with a West Montgomery named George Brown that was a hell of a drummer. I ran into him in Europe, and I remember he was on one of those river sites with Wes when I was a kid. I think the other guy's name was Paul Smith, but this guy, George Brown, really stood out like he could really play the instrument, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I saw him in Europe, he sounded like very modern when I caught up to him. This was before he died, and he sounded like kind of out of the Jack DeJanette type of school or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he played, I don't even know what, you know, something modern like that, where everything was broken up and really, you know, definite, you know. And uh, Lenny White was a big influence on me because of his cymbal beat. To me, out of the people who have survived and that are still left, he's got the greatest ride beat of anybody. To me, it knocks me out because it's dripping with soul. It's just funky, man. You know what I mean? I don't know any other way to put it. So what? This dude can swing, man. You know what I mean? Like, forget it. I mean, I go, I, anyway, you know, it's something I like to talk about because um, I was speaking with him yesterday, and he was saying that many guys nowadays, many guys don't know how to play the ride cymbal and think they do. They don't even think about it. They go dang, 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 and then they just play their stuff. Well, that's you know what, what I was I mean? just going to ask you. Like, what happens <clears throat> if if you think what you're playing is hip and it's not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you don't you know what you don't know. <laughs> Well, hopefully somebody will tell you if it's not, and or you'll be able to glean sooner or later that what you're playing is not hip and do some self-reflection and then do a repair job or to go. I mean, I've had to do that a million times about a lot of, you know, I used to, fortunately, I've recorded enough to find out pretty much what's working and what's not, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, but um, I used to do these things that I thought were really great, you know, like, wow, everybody's going to love this, and I wasn't getting the proper reaction, but it seemed to work out while I was playing, but it wasn't, it wasn't really good, uh, it wasn't working, and um, somehow I didn't know it was, because it felt good, so some right. things can feel good, but they don't sound so good when you hear the bigger picture, mm-hmm. you know, and as my ears opened, and I could hear more of the other humans that I was playing with, not just my own voice, then I got better at editing. <laughs> you know. So let's let's walk through a scenario. I walk into your studio for lessons, and you're like, "All right, let's let's play some jazz." And I play the ride beat, and it doesn't swing, and, which oh. probably would happen because you know I'm self admittedly not like the world's greatest uh, jazz player. So. I walk in and it's not swinging, so what do you tell me to do? I would show you what Sam Woodyard showed to me, and I would explain about the quarter note, how uh, don't worry about the triplets, don't worry about fast rolls, don't even worry about playing anything, let's just work on that ride cymbal. And I would show you, now I, I, um, I'm not saying I got the best groove in the world, I'm just saying my, uh, that mine works, I can get it going. Right. And, and I learned it from Sam Woodyard, and I'm not, and I'm also not being, saying that I can do it like he did, I'm saying that he showed me how he did it, so I did 
at 13 years old, he showed me. So I did my version of what I saw, thought he told me, and I came up with my own way of dealing with it. You know what I mean? Sure. And I show guys how I deal with it. And, of course, you know, you're going to play with a different band every time you play, so it just can't be one set-in-stone thing. There's got to be plenty of leeway and wiggle room. But I have a way of dealing with it and it usually works pretty good so i show guys that and how to really improve their quarter note and the same can be said of a backbeat guys come to me and will play some really great beats uh really tricky really independent and have some great um fill-ins or chops or ideas whatever you want to call them phrasing and their backbeat will sound clangy or weak or milky or, or cloudy or not. It won't be sufficient. It won't have enough uh, meat and potatoes in it. And I know how to hit a good backbeat because I was shown. It wasn't like I just had it that way. I played so many R&B gigs and, as a young guy. Um, uh, and there were so many great drummers around that they, I watched what they were doing and asked questions. And so I have a pretty substantial backbeat so i show guys that too you know i mean it, it doesn't just have to be the ride symbol it can be it can be that or or language or or sometimes technique some people's technique um is unstable mm -hmm. and although i can't show a guy how to play at 240 on the metronome i, I can usually uh, help stabilize a guy's technique because you know i play him playing so long i can see where he's falling apart you know mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know just stuff like that it's it's common sense i tell people a lot of times you know you, it, as far as the drum set set playing the drums itself it's kind of like driving a stick shift you know you get good at it after a while you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so, and if you have help, you can get really good at it. I've had a lot of help, and and when I get stuck, I go to other drummers that are playing stuff that that are, that's out of my range, and I talk to them about it and ask questions. Still, I love this never-ending process. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting as hell. You sure. know. I mean, there's, there's technique if you like that, and there's language, and there's phrasing, and there's you know, where to put a phrase and where to start and stop a phrase and how clever or somebody can get her emotional or soulful. Well, I mean, just, man, it's non-ending art, you yeah, know? I, I love it. It's like the, you know, it, it never ends. Like you said, it doesn't matter. You could be lived to a thousand and it still never ends. And you'd still be going like, man, you know, I could make this better. It's not quite laying right <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, man. That's, the, I, that, that's what's so great. And uh, my favorite drummers are the, are the drummers who are hearing the band, who play good drums, but the music is what's first and foremost on their mind. They play good enough drums so that their ideas are interesting, but but also they're, they're playing for and with the band because that's what makes the ideas ten times as interesting as when you're speaking a language and somebody turns a phrase a certain way or what have you. you I, I totally agree. And now you mentioned phrasing so, and not to get too deep into this because we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> but I think that there is, I see a lot of players that play without a sense of phrasing. So can you just kind of break that down a little bit and, and talk about phrasing and, and how to improve on phrasing? I think that um, if you understand the structure of the tune, right, 
this will give you places to hang your hat. Mm-hmm. This will give you something to do and a reason to do it so you're not just blowing and playing drums. You have something to do. It doesn't matter if you play paradiddles or a single or a double or any. All that goes out the window. Um, and you're playing total music. So you're playing. Uh, I'm not saying you're not going to use some of those. you got to play the drum set, so some of those things are going to show up. But you're not thinking of it. Of uh, When I was younger, I would play... And if a drummer that was quite good would come in, I would try to play some flashy stuff. Or or when I was playing with the band, I would announce that I was proficient on the drums by some of the... And I wasn't really playing the tunes. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and And a trumpet player, Woody Shaw, as a matter of fact, when I was 20 years old, was like, I really like what you're doing. You're a good drummer. I want you to use the same drum language you're doing but play put those things in the music make your phrase uses you don't have to play drums you're, you're a drummer so you're, you're you're already playing drums so you don't have to hot dog or be a uh, you know play the phrases that will help perpetuate the swing and have a conversation with the guy on the front line the soloist right right play something to stimulate him and at the same time when things relax enough you can have an actual conversation and that's when I started looking at it like that and that's when I started getting my phone started to ring a lot you know sure when I made that adjustment but when I was younger I thought that I had to play the drums real good you know I didn't understand I was learning I think there's a quote that Steve Gadd said something along those lines it was like you know I could play all the same stuff that everybody else was playing and but I wasn't getting a call and the reason was I learned you know then I learned how to groove and play along with the music and he was like mm-hmm. then you know now he's Steve Gadd that's what happens that's the payoff you know what I mean and sometimes it's you don't know to do that if somebody can tell you to do that and you don't it maybe it takes you a while to understand that but I I think that um, for me I could make the adjustment quite quickly because of those years of I mean, I would go in and out of having nights when I was playing total music and then other nights when I was playing the drums. It took a while for me to mature, you know what I mean? And it's it's Mm -hmm. like to where it was like now, it would seem ridiculous for me to do anything like that. I'd be like, what? You know, what are you doing? But, um, I mean, I can't, you know, anyway, that's gone. But, But I think by knowing the structure and the spirit of the music, you know, um... And knowing the language that people are playing so you can know what's being said to you when guys are playing. I mean, you can't know every note a guy is playing, but you get the idea, you know. Mm-hmm. Then your phrasing, can you can do some things with the phrasing that are really create value for others, which will in turn create value for yourself. Right. Yeah, something like that. Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, well, you know I, I think that there's a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the maturing that you mentioned, I mean, a lot of it is an ego thing, too, of like, it's hard to sit behind the drums and not show off, you know, right. if, if you're if you're not thinking musically, you know, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to say, all right, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to play that that new lick that I've been working on all week or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, you know, it, uh, drums are interesting because it is a physical instrument. So when you sit down, most of us, when we sit down, let's say we walk into a room to to shed and there's a drum set there, you don't sit down usually and, 
and play really pretty and quiet and so you're going to sit down and kick some butt straight off you know right. what i mean right. like you know because that's just kind of part of it and good drummers are are like that they're like elvin jones was fierce man you know mm-hmm. what i mean like you know so but i think once you channel that into you can channel all of that energy into playing your butt off and have it be musical. That's the that's when I'm at my best. When I have the both worlds combined, my hands and feet, my body is working uh, perfectly or as close to perfect or whatever that means. Working really, running really well on all eight cylinders or whatever, right? Right. And and my musicality is jumping off, and everything is like spontaneousness. There's no thought. It's just happening. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. uh, that's when I'm at my best, and that's when I feel the best about things. You know, mm-hmm. so and I yeah. agree. I mean, like you said with Elvin, I mean, he sounded like a freight train. You know, like he didn't he he played he didn't play pretty quote unquote. I mean, he played beautifully and and musically. You know, but he sounded like a freight train. And but with you know was everything was so musical that it was amazing. Yeah, he, I think it was Lenny White that said one time, or somebody may I forget who it was. I read this somewhere. And it said he sounded like a choir of African drummers. He did. He did. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It was like, and he was a genius because when you listen to what, there's a sample of phrasing, like everyone you hear him playing all that stuff, it goes perfectly with what Train was playing or with McCoy or whoever, Tommy Flanagan, whoever he was playing with. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, you can hear in his early records when that was that thing was starting to form, and then it took hold, and he brought it all the way to fruition. What was he said? He what did he say? He said something like, "When I got with John Coltrane, um, it solidified all of my ideas." That gig, being on that gig, made. And then he knew his what he was thinking, what he was trying to get to was correct. He said, "I didn't want to play the standard forms," is what he said. He didn't mean the forms of the tune he meant the standard stuff the conventional mm. drumming you know right. what i mean he, sure. he just didn't want to do that you know and that, that's how i felt when i played actual proof i didn't want to play boom i wanted to play my stuff right. <laughs> musically but my stuff anyway, <laughs> that is know. a kick-ass groove man i gotta say <laughs> thanks it's hard as shit to play too <laughs> you know, it was easy as hell when we did it. It just went down perfect. It really did. It just really? went boom. Yeah, one take, bam. You know what I mean? And it was like, uh, but but Paul and I had at that time a million rhythms in that in that vein because we'd been playing together for years before we met Herbie. In fact, on Thrust, I I tried to play everything like that, not like actual proof, but you know that style. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, make it more. Uh, they didn't use words like pocket in those days, but they were trying to get me to not blow so much and to keep it straight, you know, right. which, um, you know, I didn't really appreciate. I didn't really understand why, but I, it was money driven, which is, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, let's, let's make some money. And I was like, let's play, let's play. But you know, <laughs> right. Hancock, he, but you'd already played with Miles and all of the records he made before that. I mean, he'd been playing. I was just getting started. So I wanted to, I wanted, you know, I was immature. I wanted him to do what he'd already done. Let's do that. You know, you go like, man, I already did that with Tony Williams and those guys. I'm not going to do that again. What are you talking about? You know, I was like, well, why not? Come on, man. You know, <laughs> I was pretty young. <laughs> right. 
you know, it was pretty like I, I couldn't understand why he didn't want to play that kind of stuff. You know, like come on, man, let's. You know, anyway, hey. <laughs> <laughs> did you funny. so? Did, did you get along with Herbie when you guys played, oh, or was it? Oh yeah, no, yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, he was a great guy, a really nice guy, and fun and accessible, and a blast to hang with, and a blast to play with, blast. Mm-hmm. So, not what I mean. You know, um, there were politics going on in the in the in and around the band that I didn't much care for. You know, I got you. Yeah, and uh, um, but. Uh, I'm not easily intimidated, so I didn't really get too rattled by any of it, and I didn't take any. I took the music serious, but not the bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, but I could see right away after Thrust that they were heading into a real commercial zone. They hired a guy that played rhythm guitar and couldn't take a solo, and uh, they started playing, asking me to play real, just play time, and I was getting. I knew I wasn't going to stay long at that point. I was looking for something. I was like, I got to get out of here. I didn't, I wasn't mad at anybody, but you can't stop. You can't tell a band leader what direction to take, especially a guy like that. Are you kidding? So I had to go out and find my way through the world because he kind of just, I kind of found me when I was quite young and I hadn't gone out and played all my stuff yet by the time I was there, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you still have some, a bunch of stuff to prove, and you're like, man, I'm just not going to lay down. And <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. I was young, and I would uh, those guys that not uh, well Herbie anyway had played a lot of. He'd made a lot of great records and done a lot in, for years and years, and he was ready for whatever he was he was doing, and I wasn't. And so I wasn't. At one point, I was the right guy for the gig, and then it became a point where I was no longer the right guy for the gig. So I was trying to get out of there, right. and I found. Uh, and Eddie Henderson had told me he had a five-night-a-week jazz gig coming up at a club in San Francisco, so I went and I played with him, and it was fantastic. And the gig lasted a year and a half, five nights a week, a year and a half jazz gig. You never Jeez. in town. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was almost like, really? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and the bread was good, you know. And he hired a bunch of great musicians, Dave Liebman, Carol Sanders, uh, Julian Priester, a um, bunch of guys went through that band because well, the band lasted for quite a while. And um, logged in a lot of hours playing post-pop with those guys. I got to really experiment and find out a lot about uh, what should and should not happen. You know? Sure. Yeah, sure. it was great. You can learn a lot five nights a week playing with, with some cats, you know? Oh, man, I'll say. You know, wonderful. Now you would you would mention uh, you know being young and and playing with Herbie and then and then going through the maturing process of you know of learning what to play and what not to play with with these guys um, when you got that when you got that five night stand so and part of that growing process is you know failure and overcoming certain certain uh, certain things you know if if you may not think you're good enough or you you may fail or not get a gig or something like that so what are f- some failures that that you've had that you've had to overcome that that you really you know question questioned your uh your your drive to keep going forward um well at one point i was a guy that was waiting patiently dying to be discovered and terrified of being found out you know <laughs> right. in other words i was young and i didn't have the correct confidence so i had a huge ego. I thought I was as good as 
anybody on the planet, and I and I wasn't as good as 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 anybody on the planet. I was as I was a good drummer, but you know I wasn't in the league of some of these guys at that time, and nor am I now. Now I can admit it, and I'm like, hey, ain't no thing. But uh, I would overplay in Gorilla the music and play single stroke rolls, blasting all over the drums and all kinds of out profound polyrhythmical ideas. I don't know how profound they were. I thought they were, you know. <laughs> I, and um, and I don't think it was that musical, but I was sort of becoming a drum star, if you will. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, then I ended up with Brand X, and uh, which was a, kind of a fusion band, and I could blow like that with them all night. So it was kind of like being with them. It was kind of like being with Hendrix or something. I could really let the cat out of the bag. We made two great records, what I consider great for the time period, you know. And then I came back and moved to New York and started playing jazz in New York. And then I was trying to improvise like Elvin, Tony, not like those guys, but play, play, blow, bash, crash. And then I started, uh, uh, and I used to listen to Jimmy Cobb all the time when I was young, and I went back and I started listening to him live, and he was just sitting back there tipping, man, and it felt great. And Al Foster could play a tremendous amount of drum stuff, and sometimes he would, but sometimes he'd sit back there and just swing and with a great groove, and I started checking all that out, and I started questioning whether I could really be happy playing like that or whether I could accommodate different things. or uh, I started losing my confidence. So in New York, I was forced to... I started getting a lot of calls based on the gigs I'd done in the past, and I don't think I was emotionally ready. But what they forced me to do was to swing and stay in the pocket and tip and get my bebop thing on and forget about blowing and bashing and crashing and all this stuff. And I played with what I had on two and four and played just nothing but uh, the language from like the 50s for about 10 years. And then I started to experiment and take it out and play how, whatever I feel like. But that period of 10 years did something to my phrasing and to my playing that was invaluable. I can't even, I'm not even sure what it was, but it made my thing feel like I'm on time. You know what right. I mean? Sure. And I'm, I, I'm not perfect, and I make the same mistakes everybody does, so uh, it's not an ego trip, but I'm pretty much on time with my thing because I, I developed, there was a lot of gigs during the 80s and 90s, so I worked four to five nights a week plus touring, and I really developed a pretty good pocket and a pretty good understanding of what to do. So I'm, if I play with guys, it's probably going to be okay. I'm not going to say it's going to be the uh, end-all, be-all performance, but it's probably going to feel pretty good, and I'm going to make the band... Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, uh, it's going to be okay. It's right. going to feel good. It's going to probably swing, and I'll get some good ones in here and there. We all will. I'll leave everybody plenty of room. <laughs> I kind of know what to do. Sure. And it was from that 10 years here, because before that I was trying to be a huge drum sensation, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and uh, after the Herbie gig. And the Herbie gig, I was actually honest. I wasn't trying to be a drum sensation, but, you know, I got to meet through that gig, all of these drum sensations, I'm like, well, I want to be one too, you know? Sure. And it was the seventies and you know, everybody was going for it. So, Hey, I was just kind of in that. And I played a lot of gigs where it, oh, if every once in a while I'll see a video or hear something that sounds like really good drumming, but the, but, but somehow it doesn't appeal to me anymore. 
Hmm. You know? Yeah, it's just, I'm hearing like that I was, he was about me. (laughs) 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 And and I kind of go like, yeah, okay, Clark. Oh, well. (laughs) You know what? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, like, and somehow or another, I'm, I'm a better guy for it. (laughs) (laughs) So what advice do you have for people that are, that are coming up now that are, that are trying to get to that point and, and you know, that, that need to come to grips with, you know, it seems like you came to grips with what, what you're good at and what you should be doing and, and what you were, what you were put here to play, so to speak. Yeah, I think so. I think it takes, uh, it's taken me a while to get to that. And um, um, I would say my advice would be to l- listen to guys that are ahead of you in growth and development. Listen to what they have to say. Try to find any of the masters that you can, people who are really doing something that you like, and try to get to know them and understand what makes them tick, what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, get as much, uh, log in as much time as you can playing with the band. Uh, so that your that your experience is playing music, not just playing whatever your instrument is, and and so that your experience becomes knowing how that instrument fits the music. You know that's important. Mm-hmm. And learn to read your butt off. Learn to write music because it's a new day. There's no record company. Who knows whether there's even a music business? So you better be well armed when you go out there. I was at it came at a time when all you had to do was be good. You know, right? And but now it's deadly. Now you have to be a businessman. You have to understand the business. You have to know the agents. You have to know the promoters. Oh man, it's non-ending. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So business education is important. All of that. You know, I would say in the old days I would have said, "No, don't go to a music school. Learn it out here in the street, like I did." But now I would say, definitely, if you can go to a college, especially where there's great teachers who are great musicians with track records that's the guy or girl those are the people to study with mm-hmm. you know this is my opinion so it's not etched in stone it's what i think right <laughs> you know so you know <clears throat> it's different for everybody but something like that ought to do it you know right. <laughs> and i also believe in determination never say die ever right never give up you have old days when it seems like the universe is saying you suck, you can't do shit, you ain't going to make it, nothing's happening, it's over. And then, but you have to weather through those depressed periods when they jump off to get to the stuff you want to do because all of us that are artists catch those days when it's just not great, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And to try not to let the, I try not to, at this age now, I still have those moments, but I don't take them very seriously. I don't let it wreck my week. It's like, okay, I realize I'm in a depressed place. I'm not going to let it blow my mind out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get right mm-hmm. back on the horse and as fast as I can. So I think determination plays a big role in how far you're going to go or not, how you see yourself, you mm-hmm. know? And, like, and you know, you're, you're self-employed as a, as a musician too. So it's like, you know, there's going to be, it's just like any other business, you know, there's bad days and good days and you have to ride that roller coaster and realize that, you know, or keep an eye on whether the good is better, you know, is better than the bad. Well, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, like, uh, that's right. 
That's right. To me, it, it, if I had it to do all over again, I would have made better choices, but I certainly would have played drums and I certainly would have played music. And I would have even uh, told certain people no and just played. I would have moved to New York when I was quite young and just toughed it out on the bebop side, you know? Right. But, you know, in the 70s, I was still quite young and all of those gigs were coming to me. So you didn't want to say no. We all needed rent. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Famous, guy, famous guys are going to call you. You're not going to go like, nah, man, I ain't going to make it. Then go down and play your little gig for 50 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so, uh, you know, anyway, like something like that. <laughs> Is that one of the one of the different choices you would have made moving to New York earlier? Yeah, absolutely, because I would have got here at a time when I could have got involved much more and, and it was still there were still a million gigs and a million cats and a million clubs and there was a scene. Now there's no scene anymore. I mean there's kind of a scene, you know what I mean? But it used to be a, even when I moved here, I moved here in seventy eight or seventy nine, I guess seventy nine or eighty, seventy nine or eighty. And um there was a scene. It was the end of about the last ten years of the scene, but I got into it, you mm-hmm. know. And sure. uh, it it was great. You know, so I got, I, I, uh, this is where I learned a lot about playing jazz music is in New York. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a place to do yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it is actually, still is, you know. And, um, but anyway, that's kind of my story. <laughs> and I, I'm still with the Headhunters. We still tour. We have a, a nice band with Bill Summers and I. Donald Harrison plays when he can. Um, um, Stephen Gordon plays piano and we use different bass players. Um, um, Richie Goods played for a while. But right now he's with Chris Bowie, so he's not playing. Uh, Chris Severinsen out of New Orleans is playing. We usually get a New Orleans, pretty much a New Orleans band, except for me. Right. And um, um, I'm enjoying that music again. Um, right now I also... Uh, have the Wolf and Clark expedition where Michael Wolf and I have a record coming out on Random Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been um, actually I've been following that on uh, on Facebook. Right. Well, that's coming out soon uh, in February, and that features um, Haley Nicewanger, who's a great saxophone player, also Wallace Roney and, uh, um, and uh, Daryl Johns on bass, and Christian McBride on bass. So it's a hell of a uh, record. We're, we we've already got some gigs coming up. Uh, we're going to play the Jazz Kitchen in Indianapolis, and we're going to play uh, so Wolf and Clark Expedition. We're really putting a lot into it. We're really trying to get that going, and so we're um, we're, we're targeting Europe and and uh, clubs throughout the United States. So I'm really waiting for that one. To, I'm excited about that. Awesome! Know? I'm definitely picking up a copy of that record when it's done. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think you'll like this one. It's pretty good. So when are you expecting to release that? I think it's February 18th or something like that. I don't know the exact day, but it's definitely in February because we have some gigs. We're playing Snug Harbor at the end of the last weekend in February. And Michael Wolf is a tremendous um, writer, arranger, brilliant pianist, jazz pianist, and, and he can also play the blues and play. he can play anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so I'm excited about that, uh, real excited about that. I don't know why I wasn't talking about it earlier, but uh, um, that's my main focus is the Wolf and Clark thing right now. I really want to get that. Um, I'm really enjoying the interaction between me and Michael and the other players. It's really high level and it feels good. Right. So, yeah. So well, how, how often are you guys, um, you guys are gigging in New York, aren't you? 
Well, we do. Uh, we did the Jazz Standard here recently. We were just getting ready to do the Knickerbocker, like a month run of weekends, but somehow it fell apart. Uh, something happened there, and then we uh, we just went out to Yoshi's and played out there, and then we did something uh, um, for a jazz school out there, and we we're getting ready to go to. We're going to Cleveland and play Nighttown, and we're playing uh, the Jazz Kitchen, and um, we'll probably go into. Uh, Albuquerque, and uh, I forget the name of the place there, um, Art Center there, and uh, and then we're looking at Europe. So we're trying to get that going, man. That's you know awesome. what I mean? And see, I really believe in it. I mean, it's like it's it's a good performance live. It's a good solid band with a lot of goodies going down. It's not just a straight uh, uh, musical. It's just not. It's not conventional. It's, it's it can go anywhere, and and we don't know what's going to happen. So it's exciting, man. You know, for us, <laughs> that, makes, exciting. that makes it exciting for everybody. <laughs> it is. Yeah, we're kind of like, uh, what are we doing? What what just happened? Oh my god. Okay. Right. You know. <laughs> so that's cool. You know. <laughs> I'll have to keep it out. Next time you guys are in the city, man, I have to I have to come check you guys out. Definitely. Please do. Yeah. I, I now, where are you? Are you in Philly? Is that right? No, now? I'm in the city. Oh, you're in the city. Oh yeah. man. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, I'll keep you posted then when it's on. You know what I Good mean? Good deal. Like, yeah. And, um, and like no, I'm, I'm originally from Philly, but but I live up here now. So. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, so you must know Jimmy Bruno and all those cats, right? Yep. Yep. Do you know Dylan Taylor? You know Dylan? Uh, I don't know Dylan Taylor. Ba- bass player, jazz bass player, and uh, yeah. Um. Um. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know Joey D and those guys, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, did you I, play with those? Uh, I've never played with Joey. I put out a record with Johnny, his brother, the guitar player. Uh, I guess it was two or three years ago. I put out a solo record, and Johnny played guitar on it. I see. I see. And yeah. did you play? Did you play with Pat there as well? Or yeah. So okay? the the organ player that was on the record um, couldn't do some dates, and then Papianki was doing some dates. So it was me, Johnny DeFrancesco, and Papianki. Great man. So you're you know those. I haven't played with Bianchi yet, but I'm dying to. He's, I love what he's man, doing. Man, he you know? is he's killing. I just started a little organ trail with, uh, um, we've got some gigs coming up in January. One at the Falcon Theater, um, and it's with Brian Charnett on organ, who's really killing, and Tom Guana, who plays with a lot of, he's got his own thing, and plus he plays with Lenny White and a lot of, he's been around uh, for a minute, a, gu- a great guitar player. He's quite something, you know what I mean? Yeah, and also, nice. yeah, if, if you're out, I'm playing with Jack Wilkins. And Andy McKee, January 2nd at the Catano. That's slamming. I've been playing with Jack Wilkins for years, and we still play together quite a bit, and it's always really good. Nice. You know? all, these yeah. dates, all these dates are always on your site, right? They're on my new site. Yeah, they are. Okay, yeah. cool. You know, yeah. and, and for anybody out there listening, it's, uh, it's drummermikeclark.com. So if you are in New York or anywhere, check out where he's playing because he's traveling all over the place. And there's a lot of listeners in Europe. Um, you know, a lot of the podcast listeners live in Europe and, and overseas. So definitely check out drummermikeclark.com if you want to check out some of these gigs so you're not left in the dark. And it's not just Mike and I here talking about getting together, listening to music and or Mike playing and me listening. <laughs> Yeah, one guy in the audience, you know. Right. <laughs> and I'm buying the drinks. What's wrong with this picture? Now? Wait a minute. I got that. Oh, hey, man, listen, Nick, I'm going to cut out, man. Uh, did we do it? I mean, yeah, man, it was, it was perfect. Okay. I appreciate it. I really do. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to, to talk to you. Like I said, man, I've been a huge fan of your work for, for many, many years, so it was great to chat with you. Cool. Well, nice to talk with you. And let's meet live since we're both in New York City. You let's, know what I mean? And, let's do it, man. Awesome. Mike, thank you again, man. I appreciate it. 
Okay, so do I, man. Thank All you. Right, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. There you have it, the legendary Mr. Mike Clark. And you can find all the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 612. Also, want to let you know, I got some really cool stuff happening uh, behind the scenes with Drummers Resource. We're starting to do some new stuff on social with the wrap-up email. I got a new site in the works. And there's some other things that I'm, I'm doing for a little bit more community involvement and tightening up the Facebook page or the Facebook group, I should say. So if you're not a part of that, check it out. It's called the Drummers resource community on facebook and i'm tightening that up a little bit getting rid of all the drum covers and and self-promotion and stuff like that so check that out on facebook and if you want you can leave a review i would appreciate that as well it takes about a minute you can do it on apple podcasts and other than that that's all i got so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.